Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Before we get into the show, I just want to say thank you so much for spending your time listening to the podcast. I hope you learned a few things. I know I sure did while I was researching for the show. I just want to say also a quick disclaimer. I am by no means an expert, not even close. I'm just here to get a little bit of, I guess you could say, perspective. And I just want to look at how, you know, a few ideas, take a few ideas and put them, see their consequences and put them in a historical context. I always, you know, combining philosophy and history, which I find very interesting. I try to rely, when I make my arguments, I try to rely on scholarly sources, but especially for what we were going to talk about today and Friedrich Nietzsche, the bodies of work are piled high, very high. So I try to be delicate and, you know, go as deep as I can. Um, you know, for, for my level, I suppose, but you know, the deeper you go, the, the more of a chance you have of maybe getting something wrong. So try to, you know, use the best of both worlds and, you know, try to get a bit of perspective. So thanks for listening. Uh, I want to begin today's episode with two famous, I guess, more infamous people from history who lived about 100 years ago in Chicago in the United States. Their names were Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Now, they would go on to commit a murder. They would murder a 14-year-old boy named Billy Frank. And these two young men were not... Their, their motives were not anything you would... I guess call normal in in the sense and normal as in nothing you see you know you open up you, you, the newspaper and then there's a murder and then you say oh I guess yeah that I've seen that motive before no well, their motive was entirely entirely different now these two young men Leopold and Loeb were came from very wealthy families they were from the accounts I saw considered geniuses. And what they wanted to do was go on to commit the perfect crime. Now, it wasn't perfect, obviously, or why wouldn't we be discussing it right now? But they wanted to commit a murder. They would go on for about seven months, planning every little thing out. But their plan ended up getting them caught due to a lot of human error which I would not get into at this moment. Now, why would two, you know, potentially really good citizens, I guess, of, of society, right? Why would they do such a thing, right? I think most of us could, would consider this a terrible evil, right? Well, their motivations, at the heart of their motivations, there were among many things, but I think at the heart of their motivations was a misinterpretation of a philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, they started out with just a few small crimes, right? Maybe stealing a, a candy bar from your local, a local gas station, or even setting a small fire. And they saw themselves as sort of, you know, they were above society and they were above the laws. And then this would take them to murder a young boy, right? All because of a misinterpretation of a philosopher. Now, I want you to take this thought 
see the the damage that too. I mean, they were wealthy, right? They could, they had choices, they had options, they could get around. But these were just two young students. I want you to take that thought of what they did and expand that to an entire country. Enter Hitler and the Nazis. And I think it's important here, right? I'm, I'm referring to Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis, you know, they include, we will see uh, a lot of like pseudo-intellectuals and people within the government, and then, you know, some, some German citizens, not all. I think it's important to make a distinction between some of the Nazis and Germans, right? And what to do, what I want to do today in this podcast is I want to get into... I want to really isolate, right? I want to isolate that Nietzschean variable. I want to see how Nietzsche was was influencing World War II, right? The, the, the ideas behind it. Now, obviously, World War II has a lot of influencing factors. This has been widely, widely studied, right? A very interesting time period, right? There was World War I, huge, right? hyperinflation, right, the League of Nations, the failure of uh, appeasement, right, the failure of the Weimar Republic, like the list goes on and on and on. But today, I just want to focus on Nietzsche and how Nietzsche's ideas, right, would be interpreted to, they would be interpreted to be used as a rationale, like, you you know, it's funny how you can basically rationalize anything, right, it doesn't have to be you know, perfectly justified in any way, but you can rationalize just about anything almost in, in how the Nazis and Hitler would go on to use this as a as a rationale for many, many evils, right? So just to give a quick overview of Nietzsche before we get into it, if you don't know who he is, he's the guy with, he's the guy with the bushy, bushy mustache, right? A little squirrel on his face. Maybe you have heard God is dead, that was something that he wrote in reference to the disintegration of traditional morality, right, in, in, in the West. Now, before getting in again, I, I feel like I should have huge disclaimers, right, all over this podcast. <laughs> what, I, what I'm about to say, right, I'm, I'm sort of an, an armchair, I'm an armchair backseat gamer in, in, in the podcast, so I am by no means an expert. What I could say be wrong, could be wrong if you think it's wrong. You know, let me know. I would love to correct it. So Nietzsche is often associated with the nihilist. Nihilist is Latin for nothing, if that gives you a sort of an idea what Nietzsche is working with here. And that's, that's he's often associated with that. So that's how a lot of, uh, I, I would say, scholars and experts, they, they kind of throw him in there. And nihilists believe that life is like life has no like there's no meaning behind really anything there's no meaning that could be attained because there is no meaning like the matter of fact it simply does not exist right there's a rejection of things being founded object objectively right uh it can sort of be whatever you want it to be right if if my dog dies or something I would say, well, there's no inherent meaning behind it, really. It's, it just it is what it is. He just died, and maybe you've heard of existentialism or maybe absurdism. Uh, they are similar, but there is still a distinction. I think there were existentialism and absurdism were reactions to nihilism. Like if 
in the the context of the dog I just brought up, an existentialist would say, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I think there's meaning in his death. So that's meaningful. Like that's inherently meaningful. And an absurdist would say, yeah, he died. And, you know, maybe there's, I, I find meaning. Maybe there's in a, in a meaningless universe, even finding meaning is inherently meaningless, but screw it. I, I, I don't care. I, I want to put meaning in it. Right. You've heard of Camus and his famous Sisyphus, right? The, the, he's pushing the, the rock up the the hill, right, and and that night he lets it roll back down, and that's what he's destined to do by the gods for the rest of his life. But Camus, he said, well, imagine imagine him, imagine Sisyphus with a smile on his face, right? So if that can gives you a sort of idea of what Nietzsche is working in, it's sort of this rejection of you know, uh, truths and values and, and knowledge and, and, and ultimate meaningless and, and purposefulness of life, right? No genuine morals. Uh, so a little bit of backstory behind Nietzsche, just very quickly. He was born in right Germany, 1844, attended schools, pretty smart guy, I think. Knew a lot of languages like music, like poetry. He studied, he studied classical philosophy and theology, um, he was, he rejected it ultimately, I think. He studied a lot of Arthur Schopenhauer, which was a huge influence on him. I think, as we'll see, we'll get into that. And Arthur, Arthur Schopenhauer, right? He's not, if you read him, he's not the super most optimistic philosopher. Very pessimistic. So, uh, so Nietzsche joins the, the army, right? He goes back to university in Switzerland to study more philosophy, his health kind of messes with him for a lot of his life. And so he lives off pensions from his university and he just sort of moves to the countryside while his health is in decline. And this is where he writes a lot of his most important works and ends up about a decade before he dies. He has a mental breakdown after seeing a horse get flogged in the town square and, you know, and that was about it for him. Now, obviously, I'm going over a lot of history here, but that is just kind of the the, the broad brushstrokes of Nietzsche's life. Now, I want to turn our attention to Germany, and this is Germany right after World War One, right after they they their economy is in shambles. Uh, there's this sort of new shaping of of Germany. Like the Germans and the Nazis particularly are trying to define, they're trying to redefine themselves and their culture right after their loss. And you know, you've heard it before, the Hitler and the Nazis, they wanted to turn their country into the Third Reich. Uh, I say third, right? There was the first, the first Reich. They said was the Holy Roman Empire. And then there was the the German Empire, right? The when, when Germany all you know was formed in 1871 to the end of World War One, World War One, you know the fall, like the fall there, and the Nazis here in an effort to define, right, define the fatherland, define the culture, they would use Nietzsche 
David Dennis in Culture War, How the Nazi Party Recast Nietzsche, says, quote, The revival of a culturally rich Germany as the so-called Third Reich, however, would be achieved only once those whom the Nazis considered its enemies were all destroyed. So war and culture went together in the National Socialist agenda. Art, said Hitler's propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, is no mere peacetime amusement, but a sharp spiritual weapon for war. End quote. I mean, you talk about culture, right? Culture and, and languages, right? These evolve over time. There is no, no, this is not a puppet, and there's no man behind the strings shaping everything, right? Normally, what the Nazis wanted to do was they wanted to take all this great German culture and, and shape it right into this, this, this weapon almost. And Nietzsche, for them, was just another weapon, someone who could be used to define and shape their country and out of all these different ideas right I think Germany does have a very rich deep culture but of all these ideas how do we know that it was Nietzsche in particular Max White in his article titled the uses and abuses of Nietzsche in the third right he says quote numerous German intellectuals consider Nietzsche the herald of the German awakening and sought to locate his philosophy at the very core of national socialist ideology and those are the Nazis end quote now it's important to say that the Nazis the national socialists were not socialist in the sense that we think of them today I think that kind of evolved away from it. I think due to a lot of political reasons. Hitler takes control, I think in the early 1920s. And he's, I think he's out for power, right? In, in, through grabbing a lot of power, he drops a lot of these party values and party motives in exchange for maybe allies or, or, you know, political moves. And like I said, when I refer to maybe Hitler and the Nazis, I'm referring to like a lot of, in one aspect, the intellectual part of the Nazi branch. One person in particular, Alfred Beemler, I think is how you pronounce it. And I would call him a pseudo-intellectual. And most scholars today discredit him. Um, and also I think it's important to note the, what the Nazis were working with. The Nazis, Max White also in his work, the uses and abuses, he says, quote, the Nietzschean system that he proclaimed, the Nietzschean and philosopher and the politician, right? This is Beemler's work, was instead drawn from the will to power, the posthumous collection of Nietzschean frag fragments, excuse me, from the years of 1883 to 1888, compiled under the auspices of Elizabeth Nietzsche. End quote. Now, what he's saying here is the will to power, right? There's a distinction to be made. There's the will to power that Nietzsche came up with, which was what we'll talk about, that evolved over his 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 work, his lifetime, and then there is the will to power the what his sister who was an anti-semite she most obviously had a political agenda with the nazis 
she would take after Nietzsche died. She would take his notes, and she sort of assembled his quote magnum opus, right? His his masterpiece work. Even though I think we know that Nietzsche would not have agreed with that, Nietzsche would not have stood for a lot of things, and and most of this what she put in there was abandoned by Nietzsche. So keep that in mind. This is a Nazi, right? Someone who has a political agenda, right? Her and her editor, they compiled it. So that's what the Nazis are working with here. And so it was most obviously a misinterpretation because it was no by no means what Nietzsche would have wanted. Max White, once again, quotes, and he's paraphrasing Kaufman, who is a, another authority, I think, on Nietzsche. He says, quote, The Nazified Nietzsche has been similarly dismissed as a crass and manipulative misinterpretation. As one commenter notes, perhaps no opinion in Nietzschean scholarship is now more widely accepted than the Nazis were wrong and such or ignorant in their appropriation of Nietzsche. Nietzsche summarizes, has, in fact, been denazified, end quote. Right, so what he's saying here is, we can be very certain that that this is just a misinterpretation. It is often been dismissed and is very manipulative, right? There is a very clear political motivation behind it. If I were teaching, let's say, a Nietzsche 101 class, and I had little old Hitler sitting uh, in my class, and he turns in his his paper on his interpretation of Nietzsche, well, I'd pull him aside and I'd say, did you even read the material? And most likely, I don't think he really got into it, so I'd have to fail for the class. You know, that's what I think that we're working with here. Now, how would Nietzsche have viewed all of this? I think that the Nietzschean view would be something to the effect of absolute disgust. White, once again, says, quote, Despite Nietzsche's radically anti-liberal and anti-humanist vision of progress, he could have only despised and abhorred the totalitarian regimes that invoked his spirit. End quote. Enough, we also discuss here the anti-Semitism in Germany, right? The blaming of the Jews, right? The inferior race, uh, which culminates in the Holocaust. I think Nietzsche also would have abhorred this as well. Nietzsche, and I'm quoting Nietzsche here, he says, I have not met a German yet who is well disposed toward Jews. The Jews, however, are beyond any doubt the strongest, toughest, and purest race now living in Europe. End quote. And that is from Beyond, beyond Good and Evil, one of Nietzsche's works. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I also think that Nietzsche said, Something to the effect of he was going to have every single anti-Semite shot, right? Because he, he very vehemently disagreed with his sister on her stances of the Jews. Um, and like I said, how can this have been misinterpreted? There are a few ways. Will to power the work, but I'm talking mostly about Nietzsche's idea of a will to power, which is what we'll get in here into a second. And will to power is something that evolved over its, over time. So what is the will to power? It is, sorry to say, but it is a little unclear. It was not systematically defined by Nietzsche, which means 
obviously it is controversial among scholars today. Everyone has a perspective. Everyone has, you know, it's not, no, no, you're wrong. It's, it's this. No, it's, it's this. I think it's, you know, metaphysical. No, I think it's empirical. So picking how I'm going to interpret this is tough. I try to be delicate and sensitive in this. I try, like I said, to use scholarly sources. But to begin, I think a good place to start is with Arthur Schopenhauer who, as I said earlier, was a big influence on Nietzsche. And he lived during the first part of the 19th century, up before Nietzsche. And he came up with this, what he calls the will. And most importantly, or I guess more precisely, the will to live. And the will to Schopenhauer it is this underlying essence that flows throughout the universe and encompasses all things. It is including humans, right? So humans are, you know, we are part of the universe, therefore we contain it. It's everything in the universe has it. And the will, right, is what he calls it, it is mindless. It's in, it is irrational. It is a metaphysical force, right? It's beyond our reality. It's not based in our reality. And... It's not, you know, like I say, it's not conscious, it's not rational, it's it's more in, instinctive, I suppose, is a way of putting it. An example would be when we move our hand. To us, there is the external, the external object of movement of our hand that we can perceive, right? We're perceiving this objective movement of our hand. But then also, and this is very important because it is existing at the same exact time, there is also the internal subjective will to move the hand. It is not cause, it is not I will the hand to move. Right? It's not cause and effect. I do not will it and it happens. It is happening in the sa at, at the same exact time. And it is happening, the will part is happening beyond our reality. So when we see our hand move, what we're seeing is the will translated into our objective perception. If that makes sense. And this is constantly happening. It's happening all over the universe. It's not just us, but we can sort of self-consciously perceive it in all things. All things possess this this will. The the moon possesses it. The trees possesses it. My my phone right here possesses it. There's a will and it's constantly interacting all over the universe. Uh, now we can experience this will, we can see, like I said, the will of the movement of our hands, right? Translated objectively. And what will, and then what Schopenhauer says is he takes this will and he applies it to a will to live. It's a, he says that humans have a desire. It is a primary, it is primary over reason. It is, like I say, insti instinctive. And our will is to survive, seeks to reproduce and to remain alive and, and to grow in our lives. And that is a quick overview, but it's sort of foundational to Nietzsche and what Nietzsche is going to be talking about here. And then also, I think I want to get into Darwinism, which is also very important. And particularly, you know, if you know Darwin, you know he is the, the theory of evolution, right? The, the theory of, you know, over time, uh, through natural selection, that, you know, mutations in genes would produce a, uh, a, a, 
a giraffe with a longer neck would. If a giraffe has a longer neck due to some mutation, he could get more food, he could get stronger, and therefore the the females would want to mate with him, therefore putting his genes back into the, the gene pool, and just over time, through generations and generations, the, the stronger would die out. Oh, the stronger would excuse me, the stronger would survive, and the weaker would die out. Right, you you kind of see this today with uh, the coronavirus. There is you hear about the strong mutations, but there are a lot of mutations that end up just dying and that are weak, and they don't survive. But you do end up hearing about the strong ones, and the strong ones are the ones that are able to reproduce. And Herbert Spencer is not actually Darwin who coins this, but it's by Herbert Spencer, and he says he coins something called social Darwinism, which is that humans we follow the same laws of nature that plants and animals follow, right? The survival of the fittest. And the Nazis are going to take this and use it for themselves as a justification. They are going to say wheat cultures and races. You know, they they would die out to the strong because it's only it's only natural, right? It's 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 inherent in nature, right? So it's important to the Nazis, and it's important to race their Aryan race and the eugenics program. And like I said, Nietzsche's will to power is it's it's debated between being empirical, uh, something more of an evolutionary psychology perspective, perspective that uh, it, it hopes to trying to understand how what motivates humans but then there's also some scholars or people who, who claim that it's metaphysical but today I, I really am going to focus more on the you know the the empirical empirical view of will to power and I'm going to look at first I'm going to look at B Bernard Register's view and his is founded more on the psychological and remember, like I said, keep in mind there's a hundred, hundred million and one ways to interpret the will to power, but I'm going to interpret it in this particular way because I think it works well with with Arthur Schopenhauer. And at the will to power's basis, it's not will to live like Schopenhauer, but it's more it's 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 a will to power. And the will to power is a drive towards overcoming resistance. It, you know, power in this context is the. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to define power, but I think power here is maybe the capacity or the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others, or not just others, but the course of events. So this isn't, you know, the power lifter. Uh, I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking more political or or moral or, or physical. It could be a many many different things, including, you know, psychological. An example could be if someone does me a favor. Uh, there's an implication that I needed their help, right? They have power over me here, but. By thanking them, this changes the dynamic to a more level playing field. By thanking them, it, it puts you more of a, in a master-servant relationship, right? You're thanking them. By showing the gratitude, you claim power back. Now, this is just one small example. And there are many others. 
but it's important also to realize the power here is is, is using and I, you know this is for Nietzsche this is more I think what he was in, speaking of in this context is power is right it's becoming it's becoming your your potential right through suffering because the will to live right if it's if it's if, if what Schopenhauer said the will to live right if we wouldn't if if, if we were just if the will to live was behind all of our motivations, right, our instincts, then we would never take risks in the first place, right, we'd be these lazy, right, because that guarantees maybe more of our survival. But Nietzsche says, no, it's, it's more about the, the power you have to take, if you want to grow, right, you have to take those chances and those risks, and through that suffering, you, become, you can reach that potential. And Nietzsche also or some people argue, right, that it, it moves beyond sort of the human behavior. It moves towards the biological, the idea that all creatures are driven by a desire to express their essential nature, to seek dominance over others, to have that will versus will, and, and overcoming the other will and, and growing in the process and creating your own values and, and motivations and, more, right, and to perpetuate the expression of their own type, right? It's instinctive. And for, like I said, for Nietzsche, power, is, it triumphs over the will to live. He, Nietzsche wants to understand how you can refine this will to overcome suffering. Now, this is all just a oversimplification, and I hate doing that, and I'm probably getting a lot of things wrong, but that's okay. We're just going to keep moving on here to talk about how the Nazis could use this for their own, for their own agenda. And the Nazis used the will to power, right, in, 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 in the... Keep in mind that you know World War Two is much more clear cut, good versus evil, right? It's seen kind of through a lens of, of power versus power, will versus will, in a time where like Nietzsche declared God is dead, right? The the morals, right? It's it's just it's about power now. It's it's about it's about creating right the the best race, and you know this is what we're left with. And the, the Nazis sort of appropriate this world to power. And I think a good place to start here is with the Nazis' use of eugenics. If you don't know what that is, it's this, for humans, it is a practice that aims to improve the quality of the human population. That sounds like some scary stuff. There are a few ways to do this. But particularly for the Nazis, it was used to exterminate other races and to selectively breed their own Aryan and Nordic race. If you were an epileptic, epileptic, you were a schizophrenic, you were bipolar, you had cerebral palsy, you were deaf, you were blind, you were homosexual, or you were transvestite, or you fair, fell into the very broadly defined feeble-mindedness. Right, that's how they defined it, feeble-minded. Well, guess what? You were a target. And these were not back backroom sort of ideas. These were laws. These were laws that... The, the law of the fatherland, the law of the land, right? 
Now, obviously, these were not democratically passed laws, but they still had, were laws of the land. And the Nazis, in their justification, were saying, you know what? They claim that, you know, these individuals, they're producing a financial and a genetic burden on the society. You know, we've heard of financial burden, I think, in the United States. That's used as a justification for maybe taking a child away. They're saying, you know, if, you, if you're treating your child in a way, such a way that in the future they are going to, you know, cause a burden right on society, then we have that right to take you, take them away from you. But then also, right, there's the genetic side, the genetic burden. I mean, you can't even help that, right? And why would, you know, who would they even do this to? Or how many had it done to them? According to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Nazis sterilized some 400,000 people, and around 275,000 people were euthanized. And this is all in an effort to breed out undesirable traits. Now, what? how would Nietzsche have viewed this? Nietzsche, the Nazis used the will to power, right? The posthumous work that he, that was published after, you know, after he died by his sister and the editor, very clear agenda. They said that in Nietzsche and the Nazis, author Charles Yablon writes, quote, among the Nietzschean concepts favored by the Nazis was undoubtedly the will to power, the notion that one could escape nihilistic despair by an act of will whereby good and evil were transcended to create a more primitive, vital, and natural society, seemed like a thorough endorsement of the basic goals and methods of the Nazi regime. End quote. And he goes on to quote Nietzsche, and this is in his work, Will to Power. He quotes, Sympathy for the decadence... Equal rights for the ill-constituted, that would be the profound immorality. That would be anti-nature itself as morality. End quote. So here you're seeing the twisting of Nietzsche for a justification for taking out certain people that would produce a financial and a genetic burden on society. No, I think Nietzsche would once again disagree with this. Nowhere in his works does he actually argue for eugenics. Richard Mueller in The Breeding of Humanity writes, quote, However, quite contrary to his early reception, it has long been shown that Nietzsche did not argue for any form of racial bio biological selection. Instead, his aim with terms such as master race was to polemically distinguished between different moralities, slave morality and master morality, to provoke competition apart from all racial categories, end quote. Here we're seeing a theme, all right, of this podcast, the consequences of a few ideas in a historical context and how dangerous, right, for good or bad, right, how these ideas can be used for evil, right? The extermination of thousands of individuals based on some bad science and some misinterpretations.
Now I also want to move on now to the Nazis' use of will to power to advance their territory. The Nazis' foreign policy, they use the word Lebensraum, I think is that that's how you pronounce it, and it means living space, and they use that word. And they said that the expansion was necessary for their nation, for their economy. Now you're seeing this nationalism being being drawn here. And if right, I like I said earlier, right there were there were no conscious and conscientious objectors to 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 Nazi Germany. If you were one, well, guess what? You you know you lost your head, or you were put in a, a concentration camp or something. I I remember listening. You know, you know, if 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 you also if if you saw what was going on, you got out while you could. I, I remember listening to, I was watching the BBC documentary from the seventies, nineteen seventies. I think it was called World War Two. It was something to the effect of that. I forget the name. But there are these people that were there at the time in Nazi Germany. They were reading the newspaper, and, and this one guy said he, he read what was going on, and he, he got out as soon as he could. He, he was not going to stick around for that. So, you know, some people got out while they could. You know, while others were, you know, you didn't want to help Germany uh, expand into into to France, right? Well, guess what? You lost your head. You were, you were committing sedition. So, you know, that is the climate of... The, the fatherland. And going back to the Nazi foreign policy, the Lebensraum, I've heard it be compared to the United States and Manifest Destiny. If you fell asleep in your U.S. history class, I'll give you a, another. I'll give you a, a recap of Manifest Destiny. It is simply put, a the the United States, the 19th century. It was the idea that that God that God destined the United States to expand its territory towards the West, and to spread its values of of capitalism and democracy and individual rights. Right? God destined us to do it. Now that sounds familiar to the Nazis' foreign policy. No, they are not the same. But it was a leading motivation for the Nazis in expanding their territories. And here I'm going to quote uh, one of the villains of the story, I guess if you could call it that, Nietzsche's sister Elizabeth. Once again, she sought to use her brother's work as a justification for German nationalism and as a justification for invasion. Max White, I'm once again quoting here, he is quoting Elizabeth in a letter I think that got published around World, World War One, And she says, these are her words, quote, If ever there was a friend of war who loved warriors and those who struggle and placed his highest hopes on them, then it was Friedrich Nietzsche. My brothers in war, I love you completely. I am and I was one of your kind. That is why so many young heroes are marching into enemy territory with Zarathustra in their pocket. Zarathustra was one of Nietzsche's works. My brother could never sufficiently stress the purifying, uplifting, and sublime effect of war. And as I have already mentioned, he received one of his deepest philosophical insights precisely during the period of his war experience. End quote. Nietzsche, I think, right, would have disagreed. Maybe you disagree with that, but in Nietzsche, in Beyond Good and Evil, he writes, quote, 
Madness is something rare in individuals, but in groups, parties, peoples, and ages, it is the rule. End quote. Here we see Nietzsche discussing the dangers of groupthink, which expands to nationalism, right, and this, this fascism, right? The group thing is the product of individuals constantly reinforcing the same beliefs. It's the idea that is that if if everyone says it's right, oh, then you know it must be right, right? Everyone says it's right. I, who am I to argue with them? They must know something I don't, right? But that logic is faulty. It's uh, an argument maybe we all heard when we were younger. Our parents probably told us it. If all your friends were jumping off a cliff, I mean, would you do it? Right? It's cliche. But there's truth to it. Just because everyone is jumping off a cliff doesn't mean it's right to jump off a cliff. You know, that's if you jump off a cliff with them, that's when Nietzsche would declare that is insanity. So we're seeing here the Nazis using their nation, right? These wills to expand their territory for the health of the fatherland, right? These will over wills, right? Our will against yours, and we can grow and overcome for the health of the health of the nation, right? To reach the potential. Now I want to move on to another one of Nietzsche's more key insights, one of his more profound aspects of his philosophy, and that is the Ubermensch. I think is that that's how you say it. Uh, and maybe some people listening to this are, you know, going to hang me by my neck for that pronunciation, but I'm just going to keep it simple and use the translated version of Overman, or as it is also going to be translated to something like Superman or Superhuman or Overman, I'm going to use Overman. I don't know for a fact, I haven't looked into it this too much, but the Superman, right, the Clark Kent, he could easily have been a, he could easily have been influenced by Nietzsche's idea of an Overman. Because he came out around the 1930s. But, you know, getting into the Overman, right, Nietzsche is, is responding here to, as I said, a reaction to a sort of utilitarianism, right, that people only, it's, it's, we, we want pleasure, right, but we, and we avoid pain. And as I said earlier, Nietzsche was said, no, it's, it's not this will to live right there. It's this will to, you know, it's a will to power. It's, it's about taking these, Risks, and if you don't take these risks, and you don't do, go through suffering, well, then guess what? I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna grow. You're not gonna learn from anything, and, and honestly, you're not better off unless you do take these. You go, you go through this. You go through the loneliness. And you go through creating your own values. Because he says that the ideal utilitarian, right, the ideal will to live, would have been idle and lazy. Nothing would have ever been done. All right, it's about this. For the Uberman, the Overman it is about this potential of us becoming, right, through hard work and suffering and humiliation and pain and uncertainty and loneliness, going against the herd nationalism, or the herd mentality, right? Nietzsche was very against, or he's very for individualism and, and for determination. Nietzsche in this book, Zarathustra, he says, quote, I teach you the overman. Man is something that shall be overcome. End quote. You know, there are many quotes, and he talks a lot about the overman in this, but you, you can get an idea of what he's talking to. 
talking about, right, man, is is an ideal, something that should be reached. You know, you may never actually reach it. You probably never will. But to a nihilist, right, you need to at least have something, I think, is a way of putting it. And Hitler and the Nazis frequently referred to the Overman as the, to them, the Overman was the biologically superior Aryan, right? It was someone who, through, you know, eugenics and selective breeding, would come, would be, would that would be the Overman. That would be the Overman as they come to define it. We've all heard it. We've heard the master race, you know, these other races, these Jews, these Slavs, these Gypsies, these were racially inferior. These were nothing more than insects. Right now, sort of used as a justification for the extermination, right? The murder of them. The Nazis, and it's already a word in German, but they referred to people that were not part of the Aryan, who were less Aryan blood. They referred to them as, uh, I'm kind of going to get hung again from this pronunciation, but is Untermenschen, I think. Uh, I'm just going to keep it simple and say Underman. That's how one way it's translated to, but that's how they refer to them. So they give you an idea, right? The Aryans, the, the Germans, we were the we were the Overmen. Anyone else that's not part of our blood is the Underman. The Nazis went as far as to give out called air they were called Aryan certificates people with good blood right they would have they would they would have the the greater Aryan certificate and people who maybe couldn't trace their blood back to you know a pure pool or something but they were still Aryan but they weren't as good as, as some Aryans they weren't as pure they would get the lesser Aryan certificate and you'd have to walk around with this right there's the the Gestapo, right? Show me your papers, right? Maybe they didn't have to show these papers, but these were papers and certificates that you would have to put in your little, you know, your your folder, right? Your along with your birth certificate and and and, and, uh, and many other things. And I have been talking for quite a while. I don't want to bore you too much. I could get deeper into this, but I think I'm going to end it there. There's a whole lot more I can talk about. If people enjoy this, uh, or if anyone even listens to this, I can make a part two because there's whole there's a whole lot more to get into. But just a few closing thoughts, because I know I've been speaking here for a little while, and for some of you who are, you know, just oh God, get done with this already, or maybe you're you listen to podcasts at night to fall asleep to, and you're using this one to fall asleep. Well, you know, I guess you're welcome. I'll go ahead and end it here and wish you a good night. That uh, some closing thoughts. I had a professor who said that you cannot understand the 20th century without first understanding Nietzsche. And I don't think I quite understand Nietzsche. I don't know if I ever will. Maybe I, I do a little bit. But I think there's still a lot more to learn. And I think what the professor said was there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of of underlying Nietzschean philosophy involved, especially with the Nazis. So I hope I did a, a decent job giving combining right ideas in, in a historical context. I wanted to get into a little bit of history, go into the, the founding of Nietzsche and his ideas, you know, what went into it and how they played a role in World War II. 
I hope I did a good job of isolating that Nietzschean variable, seeing how it affected Nazi Germany. Um, I hope everyone's happy with this. Thank you so much for making it to the end. If you enjoyed, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. just want to thank the sponsor of the podcast, which is me. You're welcome. And subscribe and follow for more if you enjoyed it. And, you know, stay tuned. You guys, thank you. Have a good day.